Welcome to Psyched, a podcast about psychiatry that covers everything from the foundational to the cutting edge, from the popular to the weird. Thanks for tuning in. I think that, that uh, on the positive end, I think there's more, more research to do, but I think uh, thinking about this um, relationship between the the uh, the mind and the body and the uh, person's experience. I mean, it makes me think of uh, things like a, a difficult childhood, child abuse, or something like that could uh, could very well increase a person's uh, stress level and uh, inflammatory markers. Well, you're prescient because that's exactly what the data show. There's a wonderful meta-analysis by Andreas Tanisi at the Institute of Psychiatry in London. We've confirmed the findings in our own studies. Early life trauma is associated with a very persistent increase in inflammatory markers, and it's probably one of the reasons why those patients have a poorer response to psychotherapy and pharmacotherapy. And what counts as early life, and is it one trauma, multiple traumas, or is it different? So another great question. The data is um, still being generated. But overall, prepubertal um, uh, abuse and neglect, um, the more severe, the worse the outcome, both in terms of inflammation, but also a host of other um, uh, factors, you know, neuroanatomical changes. You know, the human brain doesn't mature until age 24. And we know that developing protoplasm is susceptible to insult, susceptible to lead toxicity, susceptible to fetal alcohol, and in my um, way of thinking, it's susceptible to behavioral teratology, namely child abuse and neglect. So it's not surprising that, that we've seen these robust effects that we have. Yeah, and I think there's, there's been an interesting body of literature developing around uh, the um, social influences on biology that, uh, you know, rats that are isolated versus rats that are in paired housing versus rats that are in enriched environments have entirely different profiles of how they do and how they behave and what that what that means for them. So, I mean, and I guess thinking about that both in childhood but throughout the life, uh, that, that environment plays a huge role in, um, and social environment plays a huge role in. in well, you know, remember that for major depression, not talking about bipolar disorder, but for major depression, about 35 to 40 percent of the risk for the disease is genetic. That means 60 to 65 percent is environmental. And I think a lot of this has to do with attachment. And I think early life trauma disrupts attachment. And I think subsequent life stressors disrupt attachment. And if you follow these kids who've had terrible early lives, um, it's a very rocky adolescence and adulthood indeed. And uh, is it possible that somebody who has had a difficult childhood would be able to overcome that and, and fully remit or fully... Yeah, so most of our studies in this area have focused on trying to uncover genetic um, uh, risk factors that interact in a gene environment way to increase or modulate the risk for depression or PTSD in adulthood. And what we've discovered is that there are some critical genes of which um, certain of the SNPs, the variants, um, unfortunately markedly increase your risk for depression if you've been exposed to early trauma. And then their counterparts, 
um, which are resilience genes that prevent it. And so I, I believe many of our patients are probably patients who've just had pretty bad luck. They pulled a, pulled a bad hand. They have three, four, five, six of the vulnerability genes coupled with early life uh, trauma that result in um, an increased risk for depression. What's really interesting is in our studies, in the absence of early life trauma, these genetic variants have no impact on whether you get depressed or not. It's only in the face of early life trauma. It's sort of like, imagine the guy who has the gene, the risk gene for lung cancer but never smokes, yeah. right? No effect, right? But smokes three packs a day and, you know, 80% likelihood. That's what Caspi saw with the serotonin transporter gene. That's what we've seen with the CRH and the FKBP5 genes. And I don't want to bore you with the, <laughs> the nomenclature, but... Yeah, they're going to be a category of genes. Now, there is some data that both epigenetics is important, so the notion that, that life events change gene expression, uh, not by changing the structure of the gene, but by changing the expression of genes. And that could be good or bad. And it may be, if I was a betting person and I was Jesse's age, <laughs> what I would do is I would like to look at the epigenetic um, uh, consequences of psychotherapy. Because hmm. I suspect, in my view, psychotherapy is a biological treatment, and I think it probably changes gene expression. Hmm. That would be a, a fascinating thing to, uh, to circle back on in a few years, and I imagine people are already uh, doing work like that. That sounds, that sounds maybe the inverse of what you're saying about the uh, the epigenetics of child abuse. That uh, you know, even we at least we tell ourselves in psychotherapy that you know we're we're filling this this role, or that there's uh, that this relationship is analogous to the uh, the nurturing relationships of childhood. Well, it's absolutely essential, you know. And I think we, we must be clear that genetics is not necessarily destiny. Hmm. That genetics can be overcome, and gene expression can be modulated. There was a very nice study uh, done in Seattle some years ago that I wrote a commentary for in the American Journal, which looked at two different foster care systems. One was funded by a foundation and was very high-end and hired the very best caseworkers. And every student in that program was guaranteed a full four-year college education if they completed it. And that outcome was compared with the sort of standard foster care system in the public sector. Um, and obviously, um, and I'm not casting any aspersions on the public sector, but the fact is when resources were put into place to guarantee a selection of caseworkers, foster care parents who were rigorously um, um, screened um, for the best of intentions, the outcomes were better. So I think attachment really it does matter, and you can overcome adversity and, and genetics. It begs the question whether like social support or psychotherapy is somehow activating the resilience pathway or resilience genes in some other epigenetic way. You know, it's interesting, um, um, having been brought up um, academically in the psychoanalytic era and then seeing the pendulum swing, um, you know, every study of, of, of efficacy of psychotherapy has always had the same conclusion, which is it's the quality of the relationship 
between the psychotherapist and the patient that is the best predictor of outcome. Regardless of whether you're using cognitive behavior therapy, interpersonal psychotherapy, or psychodynamic psychotherapy. And in my mind, that's exactly what it's about. It's about the attachment. It's learning how to trust people. It's having somebody help guide you in a certain way, in a safe environment, when you haven't experienced that. There's no chance on earth that doesn't have an effect on your stress system, on your endocrine response to stress, um, and on inflammation. I think that's a very uh, optimistic note to uh, shift into our last phase of, uh, of questions here. We, we do a rapid-fire questions for our guests. Um, so uh, the last, uh, if the next few questions you could answer in one or two sentences. What's an area that psychiatry is going wrong or an area that psychiatry can improve in? So our treatments just simply aren't as good as, the, as we would like them to be, and we have to be upfront and honest about it. If only 28% of patients are in remission after um, monotherapy with an SSRI, we have a problem. And we must teach um, uh, practitioners in the community to be aggressive about treating depression with whatever it takes. RTMS, psychotherapy, ECT, uh, any of the FDA-approved treatments. And we're, we haven't been good at that. That's one. The second really quick answer has to do with the fact that we don't have parity, mm -hmm. um, and it's it's just it's just simply a societal disgrace that our patients cannot get adequate treatment, and the notion that parity laws have passed and, and President Obama signed them, the bottom line is my faculty get paid um, through third-party payers minuscule amounts um, for their time. Um, compared to, say, oncologists or ophthalmologists or neurosurgeons. And I have nothing against my colleagues in other branches of medicine. But if our patients can't get the treatment how, and we can't pay our faculty and practitioners can't get paid in the community and, and companies are constantly denying medications that we prescribe uh, because everybody wants us to use generic medications, how can our patients get well? Um, just for people listening, like, what would, before I ask you the next question, what would be the price difference for, like, let's say, going to a psychiatrist and getting reimbursed versus even just going to a primary care or something? Well, primary care is not a good example because okay. they don't get paid very well. Yeah. So psychiatrists, pediatricians, general internists, family docs are paid very poorly. But depending on the plan uh, and the state, Medicaid pays very poorly. Um, as, as much of a help Obamacare was for many states, there was no provision for illegal immigrants to be paid. So many of us, particularly us in Miami, but also in California, uh, ended up seeing a lot of patients who were coming to the emergency room extremely sick, and there was no opportunity for them to be reimbursed at all. It's our job to take care of everybody. Mm -hmm. And so... It's a pretty serious problem. Yeah. <clears throat> the next question is, um, what's your favorite book? Wow. Are we talking about fiction? Or are we talking about um, nonfiction? Either or both, whatever so, you like. Um, so <laughs> I highly recommend one of my best friends is a novelist named John Katzenbach, whose father was Nicholas Katzenbach, the Attorney General of the United States. And he writes really great psychiatric, psychological thrillers, 
and really delves into the minds of the characters. So I would highly recommend him. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that the fifth edition of our textbook of psychopharmacology was just released here. Um, but yeah, I, I tend to enjoy fiction very much. I just read a uh, fabulous novel by a guy named Peter Heller called Celine. It's about a 62-year-old woman um, who's a private detective. Very cool. Cool. What advice would you give to a young doctor? So this is the golden age of psychiatry. Um, all of the advances in neuroscience, molecular biology, and genetics are now being applied. And in the next 10 years, there's going to be a sea change in terms of treatment. We're going to develop personalized medicine and psychiatry. You're going to see a patient. You're going to get their genetics. You're going to probably get imaging on them. You're going to get inflammatory markers. And based on those results, you'll be able to op optimally match them to the best treatment and not have to play trial and error. And, um, you know, that's going to be a whole new world for us. A lot less dart playing. All right. Yeah. <laughs> and the next question is, who is a person, fiction or history, that you consider a hero? So, um, boy, that's a great question. I'd have to say Hank Aaron. I was in Atlanta for many years, uh, and Hank Aaron had the most incredible grace under pressure at the toughest time. You know, here was somebody who broke Babe Ruth's record in baseball. His salary was never what the salaries are today, um, but he held his head high in the face of racial slurs in the most difficult time, particularly living in the South. Um, uh, uh, wasn't easy, and uh, I just respect the heck out of him. And uh, I guess this is also related to uh, another uh, person who's somebody who is um, in history or a, a story of someone who had a depression and was able to, to push through. So, um, you know, there have been many um, uh, folks... Um, um, in Hollywood that have suffered with depression. Um, some have been upfront about it. Others have not. Certainly, historically, we know Vincent Van Gogh you know, suffered with terrible depressions. Um, uh, and Kay Jameson has written about this, well worth reading. Clearly, Lincoln suffered with depression. Probably the best example was Churchill, you know, the black dog of mm -hmm. depression, as he's the one who named it. Mm -hmm. um, and went through just periods of melancholia that were just so severe. And his biographer um, um, actually said that to liken his depressions um, to sadness was actually um, the same as likening a, a canker saw to a carcinoma. Mm. That's how severe he viewed his depressions. Wow. Well, um, thank you for joining us on the show today. Uh, we really appreciate your time. Well, it's my you. pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.